This morning I'm thankful for the Word of God reading to us and that we have access to this Word and by this Word that we can have confidence that the Lord will work in the midst of His church. I hope that you'll keep the Scriptures open this morning as we are in the Gospel of Mark, as we continue this sermon series uh, on the road with Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. Today we find Jesus in a fascinating part of this road. We find him home, and again with crowds gathered all around him. Uh, I'm going to begin the time by just making an observation about our passage here in Mark chapter 3, verse 20. I hope you'll keep your scriptures open as we look at it, because one of the things that you're going to see is something that happens very often in the gospel of Mark. It's something that uh, commentators like to call, as they like to make up words. Uh, This is the Markon sandwich, all right? This is a Mark sandwich sandwich. And he does this often in passages of the Gospel of Mark, where he tells a story, and in the, right in the middle of telling the story, he stops telling the story and tells a completely different story. And then, at the end of that story, when you feel like it's settled and like we're done, he goes back to the first story that he was telling and wraps it up. Well, as is true with any sandwich, the meat of the sandwich, at least as far as I'm concerned, is the real point. All right, I'm fine with the bread. It's like I'm fine with Wonder Bread because you can squish it, squish it, and it can disappear. Uh, because I really just want the meat that's in the middle. Well, that's what Mark is doing in these sections of Scripture, where he's taking this meat that is in the middle of the sandwich, this message about the Holy Spirit, who is holy, not unclean, and he's sandwiching it within the narrative of something that happens with his family. Right, so you can see his family there in verse 20, and you can see his mother and brothers coming to him in verse 31. And in the middle of that is the meat of our passage this morning. In this morning's passage, Jesus' family and Jesus' enemies both try to bind Jesus. But what we discover instead is that it is Jesus who has bound the enemy of them all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that we have access to your word. We thank you that your spirit is at work in the midst of your church. We pray that you would do your work, Holy Spirit, by your inspired word. A work of grace, of transformation, of casting out that which is of the enemy in our midst, chief among what you would cast out, Lord, we pray this morning would be unbelief, that we would believe this morning. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things, and we pray that we would be enlightened and encouraged and equipped as your people this morning by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning's passage is uh, really a pastor's dream because it's so well organized, all right? So the sermon preaches itself. You can just look at it and and see what is there. This morning what we have is we have two groups that come to Jesus. Each one of them make a claim about Jesus, and those are going to be our two points this morning. Why make up points when the Bible gives them to you, all right? So we're just going to see what's right here in the passage for us to find that two people Come to Jesus. The first group that comes to him is his own family. 
presumably his brothers and sisters and mother that we see coming to him later on in the passage, perhaps even his aunts and uncles, who knows who all came, How many, maybe the extended family had to come and get Jesus. They come to him because explicitly in the scripture we're told they believe he's, quote, out of his mind. Do you see it? He's out of his mind. Jesus' family come to the conclusion about Jesus in this particular moment that Jesus is out of his mind. Look at the passage with me. If you look in verse 20, they went home, the crowd gathered again, so that they, that is Jesus and the disciples around whom the crowd was gathering, right? They couldn't even eat. Now you're out of your mind if you're doing something in a situation that puts you in a situation where you can't even eat. Clearly, you're out of your mind. All right, this is a good mama coming after her son, saying, you're out of your mind, eat something, right? When his family heard that he couldn't even eat with all the crowds pressing in, they went out to, quote, seize him, right? The word seize there is nothing, more, nothing less than the word arrest him. They were looking to put him in cuffs and bring him home because he's out of his mind. He's not taking care of himself. He's not healthy. He couldn't even eat, family says. He'd been traveling all around the countryside of Capernaum by the sea. He couldn't even eat. Essentially, his family's taking him, going out to get him because they think that he's taken this whole ministry thing a little too far, and it's doing damage to their beloved son and brother, Jesus. Now, when we look at this passage, we need to remember a couple things before we start to put people in categories and start judging them and put ourselves in the category of Jesus and his family in the category of like the bad guys, right? Well, Jesus came from a devout family. Can we just like agree with that? This is a devout family. You can't have Mary's response to God's announcement to her. You can't have Joseph's faith risk in the culture, to continue on with Mary. You can't have Elizabeth, their family. You can't have Zechariah. You can't have John the Baptist and not say, there's something about this family that's devout, that's dedicated, that's righteous and upright. And yet that devout family didn't get Jesus. They didn't get it right. Not yet anyway. They still thought that in the midst of the ministry of Jesus, that Jesus was going a little bit too far. His family aren't, his family aren't the only ones during the course of our time in Mark that are going to come out to correct Jesus as a bit radical in his mission. You're going to see this happen a few times even in the Gospel of Mark, in a few chapters, and I, what I think is the turning point of the book in chapter 7, 8, 9 there, one of the things that we're going to see is Peter, the rock, does the same sort of thing. Jesus, I'm with you. I'm devout. You and me, same God, right? But you just said something that proves you're out of your mind, and Peter grabs Jesus, pulls him to the side, and he says, Betrayed, suffered, die, that's a little bit too far. I was willing to go further than your family went. I was willing to not eat with the crowds pressing in on you. 
I was willing to put boats together so that we could escape the crowds in the previous passage. But when you talk about suffering, being betrayed, and dying, that's too much. We need to talk, Jesus. Many become upset at the ministry of Jesus, even those who are religiously devout, even those who in all other ways are devoted to Jesus. And this is my point. Even true, devout persons who are serious about the Scriptures, who desire to follow God faithfully, can fail to do so at this very point. You see, Jesus does not fall into defined notions and expectations. He doesn't fit the confines of cultural and religious norms. Friends, when a couple weeks ago we looked at old wine, a new wine in old wineskins, that's what it's being talked about. And Jesus, this new wine, and this powerful ministry of the gospel doesn't fit in the old wineskin that his family was devoted to, or that the scribes were devoted to, and I would ask you this morning that perhaps you may be devoted to. Are you paying attention to the real Jesus, and are you allowing him to speak? He is God. And he has shown over and over again that his ways are higher and other and greater than our ways. He doesn't conform to our ideas of reasonable. Rather, our ideas of reasonable must learn and be conformed to the ways of the Christ. Are you done with that? Like, have you already done that? Like, you're all the way conformed and transformed? Or perhaps even this morning, this afternoon, this week, you should be confronted by the ways of Jesus again. What we discover is in spite of all the radical events of the gospel, in the end, it is Jesus alone who is in his right mind. I mean, look at the story. You have a bunch of people who try to correct Jesus, try to guard the people against Jesus, who get Jesus wrong in almost every single way, and in the end, Jesus is the only one left standing. Jesus is in his right mind. I would suggest that this plays itself out in two ways. There are two ways that we seek to conform Jesus to how we believe he should be understood. The first way is this. The first is the idea that Jesus is wise, but basically secular, all right? Kent Hughes suggests that Jesus' family's approach to him here is the model for those who appreciate Christ and even Christianity, but don't follow Jesus by faith. They look at Jesus as like, um, you know, something to be learned from on the side, some, someone to be paid attention to and worthy of some sort of honor aside other honors, like the Bible belongs on the shelf, not as the foundation for anything that might be true of the shelf of the whole. That Jesus is the model for, uh, that, that, that Jesus' family in this place is, is, a, is a model for those who appreciate Jesus but don't submit 
to Jesus. Jesus is considered smart, compassionate, but when it comes to all the miracles and claims about himself, he's out of his mind, all right? Jesus was a great teacher, even a great wonder worker, a great worker of compassion and love, but either he got a little carried away with the whole I am the way, the truth, the life sort of stuff, or his followers got a little carried away in making up myths about him when they finally got around to writing it down. But the real Jesus is just a compassionate, wise teacher. The rest of it needs to be tamed down just a little. The second way that we can get this wrong is the religious but safe Jesus. My guess is if you're here, if there's a category that you might wander into, it would be this one. That Jesus is quite religious, he's quite devout, he makes demands upon you, but he's basically safe. You don't have to be an atheist to belittle Jesus, to follow a little idol Jesus. I'm not saying that you're not devout or serious about the things of God, but it is possible that you've accepted a cultural, even religious cultural sense of what it means to follow after the Lord. You believe that, that Jesus is truly God. You do believe that he's the only way of salvation, but you might think from time to time some of the things that Jesus said gets a little carried out of the way, and it must just be a metaphor. And you just sort of chalk it up to metaphor, throw it on the back burner, and move on about your life. And you don't do business with the words and deeds of Jesus. For instance, does Jesus really mean, in our own passage, at the end of our passage today, that I ought to identify with the family of God as much as I do my own family? Does he actually mean that? You, you mean I should invest in the discipleship of other people's children? That's crazy. It can't be what that means. Move on. Next thing you know, you'll say that I should sell everything I have and give it to the poor. Crazy talk. Surely that's a metaphor. Thank God he didn't really mean that for any one of us ever. I don't want to take it too far. That'd be out of your mind. What do you mean I have to consider my retirement years as belonging to the Lord and not leisure? That the whole of our life, from beginning to end, belongs to the glory of God. That's crazy talk. You're out of your mind. What do you mean I should make my goal as a newlywed, as a putting together my budget to grow one category, the category of Christian charity. However that might play out in the life that you experience together. I love sitting with couples. It's, it's one of the great privileges of mine. In, in some ways, I kind of feel like I'm making up for my own error, you know, sitting down with young couples and go, walking through the, the finance meeting with the pastor and we talk about the biblical uh, things of God, that everything that we have and everything that we are belongs to the glory of God. And I love describing to them that as their wealth grows during the course of their life, if the Lord would allow it, how beautiful would it be if their life, as exhibited in their budget, looks like a life that is growing in Christian charity. That's crazy talk. That's out of your mind kind of talk in this culture. And I love it when I see lights turn on. 
And I love the challenge that it leaves with me when I go home and do my budget six o'clock in the morning the next day. What do you mean the idea that me time is a more the product of personal peace and affluence than any concept of peace and rest in the scriptures? I'll stand on that one. I think we could unpack that in the scriptures. It's radical, it's a countercultural idea, but Jesus seemed to think that he was rejuvenated and nourished by time with the Father, not me time, but by time with the Father and time with the family of God. Look, I don't have time to eat family, I don't have time to go home on Sunday afternoon and have family time and me time. I'm busy right now being fed by being with the people of God, the people who walk in the ways of my Father. I find that refreshing, family, go home, I'm good. Where Jesus thought, Jesus' family thought that he was basically a good guy, a truly good elder brother who had probably taken care of them in the likely absence and through the death of Joseph, their father. He's a good guy. But he was getting a little carried away, taking it too far. We have a second group in the passage. We have the group of the scribes from Jerusalem. And the scribes from Jerusalem basically said, Jesus isn't out of his mind, he's evil. He knows exactly what he's doing, and what he's doing is evil. You see, people who are foolish or crazy out of their mind are easily dismissed and swept to the side, but a person who is evil has to be dealt with. And the scribes, coming down from Jerusalem, are there to deal with Jesus. It's hard to ignore that Jesus had great power. The words of Jesus were not the words of a madman. They were powerful words, and they were either true or they were false. They were either good or they were evil, and they had to be dealt with, and so the scribes came down. And here's what they said. If you look at the passage with me, verse 22, scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. That's their conclusion. They've observed, they've done the math, they've read the scriptures, they conversed together, and the vote came down. He's not crazy. He's evil. Beelzebul. Now, there's one that we could spend a little time on. Let me first of all say, I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? (laughs) Right? There's a lot of good options on what in the world's going on with that Beelzebul. Uh, It isn't a known Beelzebul is not known name for Satan really anywhere else. Some would say that maybe it's it's another way of saying Beelzebub, that that means etymological options. If you look at the word and do some work and read some other stuff that I haven't read, but I read people who did, they seem to think that it might mean something like Lord of the Flies or the Lord of the Gods who have wings or something like that. But that's Beelzebub, not Beelzebul. And it's my understanding that the name is probably something a little more simple. The scribes are simply calling him the prince of demons. I favor the idea that Beelzebul means something like Baal, the prince. Baal, the idolatrous false god of the nations that surrounded Israel, was increasingly identified with the work of the evil one, Satan, notoriously the enemy of the people of God. So Baal, the prince, and one of the reasons why I favor that interpretation is because of Mark's own continuing parallel statement. Look at it with me. He's possessed by Beelzebul. They were also saying, and 
by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So I look at that, I think that those are actually kind of the same statement, especially for someone who doesn't catch on to the sort of slang reference that the scribes were saying when they said Beelzebul. They're basically saying he's casting out demons by the prince of demons. That's what they're saying. On the authority and power of evil, of the enemy of God, Jesus is doing mighty works. Friends, I don't even like saying that sentence. That's a problem. There's something going on here. This makes sense because Jesus then goes right at the prince of demons, right at the kingdom and the house of the enemy. He combats this claim that he's working on behalf of Beelzebul by going right at an attack at Beelzebul the prince of the demons. Jesus ends up saying that either the prince of demons is blundering or Jesus is at work plundering the prince of demons. So he tells a parable, as he often does. Verse 23, and he called them to him. So he says, hey, there's a big crowd here. Don't even have time to eat, but hey, scribes, come here. We need to talk. There's something you're saying, and this stuff just can't let linger in the air. And he brings them aside, and the passage says, he said to them in parables, and then it tells us what the parables were. He tells them this, a kingdom divided and a house divided cannot stand. He tells them that two ways. A kingdom divided cannot stand. Second part of the parable, a house divided cannot stand. And so he then gives them two options in that very simple parable. My guess is Mark just records sort of a summary. My guess is he told a story to make this really really shine and pop with the scribes on that day. But the basic idea of what he shared was that a kingdom divided doesn't stand and a house divided doesn't stand. We can all agree on that, right? So option one, and then he continues, verse 26, and if Satan has risen up, Against himself, option one, that house will not be able to stand. I'm sorry. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So option one, Jesus, Satan's made a huge blunder, and he doesn't recognize by sending me to cast out demons, you should all be happy because Satan's about to go down because he's a dummy. He's tearing up his own house. I mean, option one with what you're saying, Sure. I cast out on behalf of Beelzebul. Let's see how that plays out. Option two, somebody bound Satan. These are your only two options, friends. The kingdom divided doesn't stand. The house doesn't divide it stand. If Satan's blundering, he's going down. Or somebody bound Satan. There's someone more powerful, more righteous, more Good, not unclean, but clean, than Satan. And he's invaded and conquered, which best fits the scene playing out in the ministry of Jesus. No response. Everybody knows the answer. Satan's not blundering. He's the ancient enemy of God. He's not blundering. Jesus has taken him by storm. And he's winning. 
the spirit by which he casts out the demons is clean. So Jesus continues. He continues, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, verse 28. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying, and Mark never does this. He never, does, he never explains what happens. He just says it and moves on. And you're like, man, this, place, this thing's moving. But here he gives just like one little brief phrase of commentary. He says, for if you weren't catching on, what they were saying was Jesus had an unclean spirit. And that's helpful. That explains something in the passage for us. Essentially, the question is this. Is the spirit holy or is the spirit unclean? Do you see why this was such a big issue? Do you see why even with all the crowds pressing in, Jesus couldn't let that just sort of hang in the air? You blaspheme the Holy Spirit when you say the spirit by which I cast out demons is unclean. Jesus has been casting out unclean spirits. Now these scribes from Jerusalem are accusing the Holy Spirit by which he's been casting out unclean spirits, that the Holy Spirit himself is unclean. Jesus, in a parallel account over in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, he says this, but if, the, if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If the spirit by which I cast out demons is holy, and if he's not, then Satan's kingdom's divided, and that doesn't make sense. But if he's holy, the kingdom of God is here. And what had Jesus been preaching? The kingdom of God and his gospel. Friends, that's good news. All that Jesus does, he does by the spirit that is at work Within him, the Spirit has been present with Jesus since the beginning of his ministry and was recorded in the Gospel of Mark. The Spirit's been present at his baptism. The Spirit was in, at work in his temptation in the wilderness and the fast that he was at work in there. The Spirit is at work in his healing of the sick and his casting out of demons. That now the scribes are claiming the Spirit by which Jesus does all of these things is not the Spirit of God, but the spirit of the devil is not holy, but is unclean. So, as we begin to understand this, this sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, James Edwards is helpful in clarifying what we should understand already. The sin against the Holy Spirit is thus not an indefinable offense against God that we have to tiptoe around being worried that maybe we might have done the accidental unforgivable sin but a specific misjudgment that Jesus is motivated by evil rather than by good. That he's empowered by the devil rather than by the Holy Spirit of God. Is the Spirit of God holy or is he unclean? I've met many Christians who have been afraid that they might have accidentally committed some sort of eternal sin. But the error of the scribes of which Jesus warns them isn't an accident, you see. You don't blunder your way into this sin. One commentator notes that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit requires knowledge. Certainly the demon-possessed 
the sinners, the tax collectors, they were blasphemous. Even in the passage, it says, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men. Whatever blasphemies they utter. There's lots of things, lots of ways that we have to come to this very room and say, thank you, Matt, for reminding us that we don't need to be ashamed to come to the Lord in prayer and confession. What sort of jokes, cruel words, foolish banter took place even when Jesus was in the room, the miracle worker. But Jesus' call to the sinners is far simpler than his rebuke of the scribes. The evil of the scribes is that they weren't joking. They didn't blunder their way into this evil. They weren't ignorant. They'd come to what they thought was an informed conclusion about Jesus, that he was possessed by an unclean spirit. They knew the word, and yet they continued to reject the power of God that was clearly at work among them. Friends, I would ask you this. If you would call the Holy Spirit, by whom we receive the gift of faith, who makes dead souls alive, by what spirit would you be saved? Can you not see why this is the very essence of what it means to remain unforgiven, unredeemed? Friends, our business is to be a people who are submitted to the work of the Spirit in our lives. To be transformed by the word that he applies. To receive with thanksgiving the gift of faith. There is no other spirit by which you would be saved. You and I ought to be warned by what Jesus says in this passage. We ought to be warned. We should, oh, okay, never mind. I believe in the Spirit. He's holy. Now, we ought to be warned. This warning is not some flippant word spoken to people in their lostness or their words of anger that they might utter in a moment of weakness. It is to students of the word and teachers of people that ought to heed this warning that we might be found to represent the Lord and his spirit rightly to our own hearts and to all the hearts who would hear us. Let us receive that word and take it seriously and take comfort that it is the spirit himself that walks with us to hold us, to save us, and to keep us, let us remain dependent upon him that we might represent him well as holy and glorious and the only means of salvation. I want to offer a comfort to those of you who are particularly sensitive this morning. I had a good friend. Uh, it was a student of mine in, uh, many years ago, close to 20 years ago. And that young man came to me because some of the things that he had done before God had gotten a hold of him and brought him to faith. And he came to me, we were at a Christian concert and we were walking around the festival grounds and he said, I'm scared. I'm scared I might have actually committed the, you know, that unforgivable sin. I did some horrible things and I said some horrible things. And sometimes even some of those thoughts come to my mind today. I, want, I want, wanted him to know and I want you to know today, if that is your actual concern, it is the least likely thing that you have rejected the spirit at all. 
because pride of the mind and pride of the heart is at the root of what Jesus is speaking of here. What is needed? A humble submission to the holiness of God in faith. What's needed is confession. God, I, have, I haven't. I haven't in any of my words sufficiently communicated that you are holy. If there's anyone unclean in this room, it's the one who's speaking about the holy. Now, humility, faith, a genuine fear of the Lord who is at work. And friends, we can take great comfort in the fear of the Lord. The scribes and all the others around Jesus had all the proofs that anyone could ever need and yet they still didn't believe what was needed wasn't more proofs, wasn't an argument, wasn't a concern about this thing or that thing. What was needed was humility and faith. To receive the word that Jesus was demonstrating and speaking to them, what's needed is faith. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to ascribe to the Lord evil, satanic origin and intent. Faith ascribes to the Lord not only that he's God, listen, Faith ascribes to the Lord not only that he is God. The demons believe that and they shudder, but that he's good. That he's good. Do you believe that the Lord is good? Do you take comfort? Do you seek the Lord who is good? Isaiah chapter five has these words, instructive. Isaiah five verses 20 and 21 says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Friends, what we need is humility, faith before the works of God. Whatever we say, whatever we know about God, we can know this. I probably don't have it completely right but I know he's good. I know he's good. I, I was thinking, how does this apply? Where, where, where does this work? How, how do we walk through this in the moment that we find ourselves in today? And one of the things that really struck me is those who call good evil. Well, the first thing that God calls good is creation, right? He, he made it, and he finished the work, and it was very good. Friends, we must not call God, his creation, and his creation order anything other than good. But there are those, and we have a temptation in our own hearts, make no mistake, to call his creation order evil. We should not be surprised for those who would not call God's creation, creation order good but evil that eventually those who would reject God's creation order would eventually begin to call that which is evil good. Let us be instructed by what God calls good. Celebrate it and conform ourselves to what he calls good. Some also would say that it is not good that God would condemn some to hell as judgment for sin and unbelief, that that's evil. That's an evil doctrine of the church. 
But friends, it's the work of the Spirit to save. It's the work of the Son to sit on the throne of judgment, judging the living and the dead. According to the Scriptures, we must not call his work of dividing sheep from goats evil. Rather, we must trust him that he's good and to seek what he does to know that it's beautiful. I trust him. I don't understand, and I can tell you this for sure, I would not be a good judge. Maybe that's part of our problem. We don't believe that he's good. You don't believe that even he is trustworthy in a judgment seat like that. The problem is we don't believe that he's good. What are the doctrines of Scripture? I'm asking you a question. Please receive it as I did myself. What are the doctrines of Scripture that make you uncomfortable? We should ask, what should we expect of the good Spirit of God to do here, right in the middle of this doctrine? Not according to your own cultural expectations. Not only according to your own little definitions of good, or your neighborhood, or his news magazines. But according to his own revelation, not according to your own cultural temperament. And let the good Spirit of God situate you in a trust of the doctrines that he himself has inspired in the Scriptures. Friends, I would be making a mistake, and some of you wouldn't let me get away with it if I didn't quote C.S. Lewis in this passage today. Some of you know where I'm going to go. Others of you are about to be blessed. But this quote by C.S. Lewis, so compelling. C.S. Lewis says, I'm sure reflecting on this passage, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but I don't accept him, his claim to be God. That's the one thing we mustn't say, Lewis says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said wouldn't be a good moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. His family and the scribes knew that. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. He's crazy or evil. You can shut up a fool, you can spit at him, kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. They did. They did spit at him. And they hung him up as a demon with all kinds of mocking words. And he rose. And all that remains when the only one who's in his right mind rises from the dead is to call him Lord. You don't, he continues, but don't let us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't let that open to us. He didn't intend to. Explicitly, in this parable, Jesus tells us he excludes every other option. In the parable itself, Satan is really a blundering idiot, or Jesus, and Jesus is a satanic pawn in some odd 
cosmic game that Satan's playing in his own house to his own destruction, or the spirit of the Christ is really powerful, grace-giving, breaking in, the kingdom of God itself being manifest through the work of the Christ as it's finally displayed in the cross and resurrection. Kent Hughes says this again. It's an exercise in sanity. It's an exercise in sanity to trust him. It's growing. Friends, we are by nature insane. We are by nature a divided people who hold two opinions that are incompatible. It's an exercise in sanity to trust him. It's growing insanity to commit all of your life to him. In the light of his claims and the full revelation of Scripture, any other life is crazy. It's out of our minds. Consider today your estimation of Jesus. Have you treated him more like a crazy uncle who's kind of always been hanging around the house, basically harmless, kind of funny sometimes, but a little out of his mind? Has that been your, especially those of you who are young, teenagers perhaps, and you've been around the church for a long time, and you hear the things that your parents say and that pastors say, and it seems like sort of the words of a crazy uncle. This morning's passage tells you it's not an option. He's really actually a lunatic, and your parents ought to leave this place. Or he's evil, and you ought to get out of this place. Or he's Lord. Those are our only options. I call you this morning to submit to the real Christ, to do business with him. Know this morning that his claim on your life is more than that you would have a nice Christian life with a nice Christian philosophy with a crazy Jesus. His claim is that he can forgive you of sin by the power of grace, by his death on the cross, made known in the victory of his resurrection so that you might have eternal life. That's either crazy talk or it's true. Crazy talk or it's true. I call you this morning to submit to the real Christ, not a neutered Christ of the culture or some religious establishment or of your imagination. Or perhaps you've read the scriptures and you've been put off by some of the doctrines of the faith. You've begun to think that some of the stories are a little more than myth. You've begun to think that some of the doctrines are a bit extreme or even incompatible with a modern society. Perhaps some of the things of the scriptures that God has called good aren't good at all. And some of the things that God has called evil are actually good. Friends, that is happening among many that ought to pay attention to the good spirit of God who has inspired this word. I want you to know this. If Jesus is right, that the spirit who has inspired the word is truly holy, then you and I have no right to stand in judgment over his words, but rather he will stand in judgment over our submission to his word. It's yours and my place to submit, to humble ourselves, and to walk in faith by the Holy Spirit who is good to those who follow after the Christ to which he points. I would offer a final comfort before we close. 
There's a comfort for us who have followed after Jesus as Jesus himself presents himself, as he understands himself. There are times that we too have been seen as good old Christians. Oh, those Christians, they're nice. One of the better coworkers that I have, they don't try and take my job and lie about me behind my back to the boss just to take my place. Good old Christians. But sometimes they take it a little too far with some of their doctrinal claims, their exclusivity of Christ sort of talk. They talk about how Jesus was born of a virgin, Mary, crazy talk. But they're basically good people, well-meaning people. They just sometimes take things too far. You've been that person in your workplace, in your school, basically a little backward and gullible, but I like Jesus. But increasingly in our day, we will be accused not of being basically good but gullible, but rather explicitly evil and dangerous. I want to warn you, that is happening increasingly. And it happened to our Savior. And the good Holy Spirit, the Father and the Father's people, Jesus took comfort the claims particularly of morality, of the authority of God to define, define reality will be met with increasing scorn, not joking, not mocking, but statements of your evil position. We will be accused of working evil, imposing our religion on otherwise good and happy people. We will be accused of working evil. As we experience these two sorts of accusations that we're weak-minded or that we are evil-minded. May we take comfort and refuge in our nearness to Christ and his gospel. You see, in that moment, you have an opportunity to fit in rage, right? What did Jesus do? I oh, took comfort with the church, the people of his father, and the ongoing work of the proclamation of the gospel. We can't fit in rage. We can't try and carve out a place for ourselves in society. We can't write a book that will make all the bad things go away. And we can't hide. We have to remain in the Father and be encouraged and nourished by his good spirit. I hope that encourages our souls today. I hope by that word we would be equipped for the days ahead. Heavenly Father, I would want to do more than hope that. I pray that you, our good God, would preserve your church, that you would keep us well, comforted and encouraged, that you would guard us against the error of our own wandering, and particularly the, the error that we have so often committed of our own pride and arrogance, our establishment of old wineskins to fit you into Lord, I thank you that your spirit is at work in your church. You've established it and you will keep it. You're good. We confess this today and we'll be in need of reminder tomorrow. So Lord, we ask that you would remind your church. Keep us in Christ, we pray. And Lord, for the one who has not yet bowed the knee to the Lord, I pray that they would be confronted with reality today. Whatever that means, Ultimately, Lord, that they would bow the knee in confession, repentance, and faith in the cross and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask this, and if it would happen, it would be miracle, and we will give you praise. 
And so we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Messiah, and our Lord, we pray. Amen.